Shalom. This is uh, February the 8th, 2009, and we're uh, finishing up our study in the Epistle to the Galatians. This is Lesson 12, with a focus on Chapter 6. Let's begin by thanking God and blessing Him for our study. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with His commandments, and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Lord our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and safeguard you. May the Lord illuminate his countenance for you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance to you and establish peace for you. This is our last lesson and uh, for the epistle uh, to the Galatians. Uh, we're really just kind of wrapping up our, uh, our uh, conclusions. Uh, we spent some time uh, studying this week, particularly studying... Uh, uh, classical Christian movements, or more importantly, classical Christian theologies, that uh, that we are always having to contend with as we read um, uh, English versions of uh, the Bible, or uh, in, in particular the uh, the Apostolic Scriptures, simply because we are are constantly have to uncover what theological bias may have been uh, uh, placed into the English text and taught to us that we all may have. Uh, because of the because of the nature of this past week's study uh, and uh, and our discussion today, particularly um, in 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 contradiction and in uh, in critique of some parts of Christian uh, classical Christian theology, I need to preface uh, our study uh, today with a uh, reminder that we are not talking about uh, Christian brothers and sisters uh, who, uh, who, who we know, who have evidence of their lives, of their true faith, and their walk in obedience to Messiah. We're not talking about uh, uh, criticizing uh, our brothers and sisters who, uh, who attend a, a church, if we, do, if we do not attend a church, uh, or members of uh, various uh, de- uh, denominations, uh, whether it be Presbyterian, uh, Pentecostal, Catholic, uh, whatever. Uh, this is not, our intent is not in any way to criticize those people and their lives and their faithful following of Messiah Yeshua. Our uh, our intent, uh, my intent specifically, as as uh, as I prepared these lessons and as uh, as I'm uh, leading this discussion today is to simply remind us that the theologies that underpin a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, classical Christian thinking are uh, based upon uh, a reaction and a bias uh, that dates back to the second century. Being able to recognize those does not negate uh, the true faith of adherence to those within those denominations. Being a recognized, be able to recognize those, those errant uh, things does not in any way uh, mean to criticize individuals, and I, I, I hope and I pray 
that our our time today will not be uh, spent in in a way that uh, is is seen as critical of a brothers and sisters in the faith. And and uh, having said that, let's uh, let's get into our study. Uh, here's some. Uh, uh, scriptures that I gave as our foundation, as our uh, thinking points for today. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's from 1 Corinthians 15:58. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's Galatians 6, 9 through 10. And lastly, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And that's from James, or Yaakov, uh, chapter 3, verse 18. A few questions for our study today. Is a Gentile follower of Messiah Yeshua, as a Gentile follower of Messiah Yeshua, am I a part of Israel? Am I Jewish? Am I a part of the covenant community, the people of God? What is my duty with regard to greater Israel? Am I to treat them as my brothers and sisters, or are they merely targets for evangelization like any other pagan? Am I ever permitted to give up on Israel or the Jewish people? I hope so. I hope some of the answers to those questions are obvious. Uh, some they may not be so obvious, and, and uh, we, may, we may not solve, as we've said before, we may not solve all the questions. We may not answer all the questions that we might come up with in our study of Scripture, and uh, we need to bless God for that, that He has given us uh, His Word, and that it's sure, and we can trust in Him, and that if we have questions, they may not be answered, but He is the answer, and we thank Him for that. Last lesson, we looked at the fact that the Torah is summed up as the commandment. That again and again, throughout the scriptures, starting in the Torah itself, and even extending into the apostolic scriptures repeatedly, the Torah, the law, is summed up as singular. One cannot pick and choose uh, from, uh, from the law and claim to be obedient. There's no middle ground. You either choose to obey God or you choose not to obey God. To say, I will do this, but I will not do that because it no longer applies to me is not an agreement to obey. There's no middle ground. It uh, Also, the idea that the Torah is summed up as the commandment doesn't mean that it's perf- perfection or nothing. Uh, that idea of perfection or nothing, either you keep it all faithfully, perfectly, or there's no sense bothering at all. First of all, it defies logic, and it defies the very basic biblical injunction that we find without, within Scripture. God tells us to obey, and then God is forgiving and merciful when we fail. But he doesn't say, don't even bother. He, in, rather, he encourages us to obey. And uh, we see this to be uh, a, a, a dominant teaching in Judaism that sadly has appeared, uh, appears to have been lost in classical Christianity, at least in the, what is written. We all know that that's not true in practice. That, that uh, any Christian that's ever lived has recognized that they still sin. And because of that, God must forgive them. And that perfection 
is something that can, we can look forward to in the world to come. Judaism has made it a point. Uh, Judaism has made it a point from the beginning, all along, that God is gracious, that he does forgive his people for failure, provided his people pick themselves up out of the dust, dust themselves off, and look to the Father of light and say, I have sinned and I choose to follow you again anew today. Repentance, an ongoing repentance. Uh, so we know this whole idea of, uh, you know, you got to be perfect or, or, or don't even try. It's just, is basically, it's, it's a, an excuse to not keep Jewish law, as some people see. We also saw that walking in the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit are not contrary to the Torah, the law of God. How is it possible that the Spirit of God could lead us into disobedience? We see that the promise, the very promise of the New Covenant, first found in Jeremiah 31, uh, explicitly mentioned in Jeremiah 31, but found in Jeremiah 31, found in Deuteronomy chapter 30, found in Ezekiel chapter 37, that the God's Spirit that God circumcises our hearts, that, he, that His Spirit is placed upon our hearts, that the Torah is written upon our hearts, and that the Spirit would cause us to walk in obedience to it. The very new covenant, the walking in the Spirit, is the fulfillment of the law, the keeping of the law. We saw also that Paul had proven his love for the Jewish people, not just Gentiles, but Jews as well. He underwent beatings that were optional. At any time, he could have walked away. Five times he went under beatings uh, from the authorities, and those beatings were optional. He could have chosen excommunication, and we find this in the Mishnah, that he could have chosen excommunication and he chose not to. Rather, what he chose to do was take the beatings in order to stay in Judaism, because once beaten, he would be completely forgiven as if he had never, had never committed whatever it was that he was beaten for. He did that for the pure reason of his love for the Jewish people. Seeing Paul as anti-Semitic is, uh, is, uh, is an awful, awful thing to consider Paul as anti-Semitic, considering his great love and his great actions on part of the, his brothers and sisters of Israel. What we, what we spent a lot of our time this week doing in preparation for this discussion was looking at some modern, or excuse me, looking at some Christian theologies, and I want to be very careful that we identify thinking and theologies uh, in, a, in separate from people. Now I'm going to mention some people, but I'm going to try and focus on, first of all, people that have, have you know, God willing, do know the truth now, now that they are no longer in this, in this life. Uh, but regardless, simply because we need to understand that some of the early, early fathers of what we call the church fathers were, uh, were, not, um, were not the saints that we, uh, that we somehow consider them sometimes simply by what we read of what they wrote. We know that, some very, uh, that there are some very, even though, even though modern Christians are not anti-Semitic, uh, most you know, by any stretch of the imagination, do, there are some dominant Christian theologies that, that have very negative origins. And it's demonstrable. It can be proven that for over the 1900 years, Christ, classical Christian theology ha, is, has anti-Semitic threads in it. Uh, all you have to do is read uh, early church fathers to see where it originated and how it originated. Um, it doesn't matter if that one of those early church fathers is Marcion or Augustine, uh, or whether you whether you like uh, uh, Aquinas or Luther. Uh, it's all the same. You see the same uh, underlying current. Uh, even modern theologians, which I will not name, 
reveal their disgust with Jewish things if you l- know what to listen for. And, and uh, examining how Israel is treated in major Christian theologies is, is what informs us about the difficulties and the questions that they had early on and the, and the, and the actions they took over, they took, they took in their theology in order to explain them away. And, this is, and, and from this we can uh, determine what, what the basis for their, uh, uh, why they chose the way that they chose in answering the questions and that it reveals itself to be anti-Jewish. Now, here are some of the questions that, they, that early theologians, early Christian theologians, were troubled by. What about Israel? Are they still the people of God? Uh, they, saw, they saw a significant number, not all, certainly not all, but a significant number of Israel not choosing to follow Messiah, Yeshua. And... Uh, and so had to explain how does this work? We had we, we you know we outnumber they them. How is it possible? Early Christianity uh, in the second century outnumbered Judaism um, uh, very quickly. Uh, how is it? You know, are they still the people of God? Or are we the people of God? Then they had to ask the question: Does Israel have a part in the world to come? And then they'd say, how does the church, or in their mind, us, how do we relate to Israel? Uh, how they answered those questions. And from those questions, they constructed elaborate theologies. These elaborate theologies went so far as to, even at the expense of calling the commandments of God evil, because they were Jewish law, now, even went so far as to negate the whole promises of God made to Israel, and did not tremble at doing that. Considering the history given in the, in the scriptures of those who oppose the people of God. It's remarkable when you think about it. It's remarkable that they, that they did these things, that they had these, this line of thinking that went this way, considering the danger of doing it. How did they ever arrive at these conclusions? And it's not something that happens, uh, ha- happens uh, necessarily by evil intent, although many of these people were, were blatantly anti- anti-Semitic. It is not always by evil intent, but it's rather a part of an a, a unseen uh, conspiracy of the enemy. How they reconstructed their theologies, how they biased their view of the scriptures, uh, allowed them to explain away whole passages of scripture, explain them away as if they didn't exist. And the result was that they began to use the New Testament to explain away or negate the what they called the Old Testament for theological region, reasons. Uh, imagine the writers of the apostolic scriptures. What did they do? They took the Septuagint and the Tanakh, the Hebrew itself, and they used it as proof text to, to prove their point rega- points regarding Messiah Yeshua. Never did they take their own experiences in knowing Messiah and turn it away to negate the very commandments of God or the word of God as given in the Tanakh and the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, imagine their, their absolute horror at knowing that those generations that followed them took the opposite tack 
and took the, 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 what they called the New Testament to explain away and negate the Old Testament, all because it helped reestablish and confirm their own theology that they had developed. Meanwhile, while this was going on in the second century, Judaism was adjusting its own theology and philosophies to counter their enemy, the Christians. There was real enmity between Christian and Jew beginning in the second century. Uh, uh, now, I know a lot of my Christian brothers and sisters will say, no, no, it's right here in Acts there's real enmity. And I want to remind you, Acts does not have evidence of Christians apart from Judaism. What it has evidence is, of is a, a, a inter-Judaism struggle. Not a struggle between two separate religions, but a struggle within the religion of the Bible. And, and uh, uh, whether, wh- whatever side one fell into uh, did not negate the fact that they were the same religion. And now we may not like to consider that. We may consider religion simply to be a man-made thing. Uh, and, and I wouldn't completely disagree with that. But the point is, classical Christian theology as separate from Judaism did not exist until the second century. I'll challenge anyone on the, the historicity of that statement. I'm going to read something from Martin Luther's Jews and Their Lives. It was a pamphlet that he, that he wrote and published in the 16th century, it was something that, that the Nazis in Nazi Germany in the 1930s distributed for free uh, to their citizens. Um, I'm going to read this not as a, as a means by which to beat up Martin Luther, because I'm going to assure you Martin Luther was not alone. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the underlying thinking of all the men and women of that time. And when I'm talking about their theology. Not that they were all anti-Semitic, but the underlying their theology. Let's listen to what Martin Luther says in Jews and Their Lies. And this is printed in your workbook as well. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? First, to set fire to their synagogues or schools and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn, so that no man will ever Again, see a stone or a cinder of them. This is, be, this, this is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom. So that God might see we are Christian. Second, I advise that their houses be ra- also be raised and destroyed. For they pursue in them the same aims in their synagogues. Instead, they might be lodged under a roof or a barn like gypsies. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which, in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews, for they have no business in the countrysides, since they are not lords, officials, tradesmen, or the like. Six, I advise that usury, that's tax, be prohibited to them, or, or uh, um, interest, 
and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. The reason for such a measure is that, as said above, they have no other means of earning a livelihood other than usury or interest. And by it, they have stolen and robbed from us all they possess. Seventh, I commend putting a flail, an axe, a hoe, a spade, a distaff, or a spindle into the hands of young, strong Jews and Jewesses, and letting them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow, as was imposed on the children of Adam. For it is not fitting that they should let us accursed goyim toil in the sweat of our faces while they, the holy people, idle away their time behind, behind the stove, feasts, and farting, and on top of all, boasting blasphemy of their lordship over the Christians by means of our sweat. No one should toss out these lazy rogues. No, one should toss out these lazy rogues by the seat of their pants. But what will happen if we do burn down the Jews' synagogues and forbid them to publicly to praise God, to pray, to teach, to utter God's name? They will still keep doing it in secret. If we know that they are doing it in this in secret, it is the same as if they were doing it publicly, for our knowledge of their doing secret doings and our toleration of them implies that they are not secret at all, and thus our conscience is encumbered with it before God. <coughs> that is a quote from Martin Luther's tract called The Jews and Their Lies. It is recorded in Luther's works, printed by the Christian in Society, uh, in uh, Fortis Press, 1971. It's found in volume 47, pages 268 through 293. This is an accurate translation of Luther's thoughts regarding the Jewish people. You can see within it the outline of the Holocaust. You can see within it the very things that the Nazis did to the Jewish people. We do not live in a vacuum. My brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. Whatever we reap, whatever we sow, we will reap. Martin Luther sowed in this and other writings the seeds for the Holocaust. He's not alone, though. Those seeds were sown countless, countless times by men who took their theology of, of supersessionism, lording it over the Jewish people. Christians win, Jews lose. And they used it as an excuse to persecute, to torture, and to murder the brothers and sisters of our Master, Messiah, Yeshua. May we all condemn such words and such actions. Let me encourage you to examine your own hearts and to see whether these, these theologies, these philosophies, these man-made ways have biased you, have convinced you of things that are not only not biblical but antichrist opposing the very words of the living God these words of Martin Luther 
I pray he has an answer for. It's a sad history. But what does it have to do with our study of Galatians? Why, you know, Rick, why do you want to end our study of Galatians this way? Um, you know, all may be true, but I'm not guilty of these things, some people might say. And I'm going to tell you why. It has a lot to do with our study of Galatians. It perverted the very understanding of Galatians. This kind of thinking perverted Galatians. Galatians was Martin Luther's proof text for the Protestant Reformation, for separating from the Roman Catholic Church. What was the main message of Galatians? Where did that go? It got completely lost in the midst of, of the perversion. What's its main message? It's grafted and not converted to. We're grafted into the people of God. We're not converted into the people of God. That's what Paul was trying to tell the people of, of Galatia. Where was that me- where's that message been taught? Do you see that message? You don't see that message being taught. Instead, you see here, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Aren't we glad we don't live by Jewish law? It's been a perversion. That thinking has perverted our understanding of Galatians. It's placed a chasm almost impossible to cross over between biblical Judaism and emerging Christianity. It gave way to new ways to keep separate Jew and Gentile. What was the problem in Galatians? Separation between Jew and Gentile. We've seen that. And what, what, did, what was Christianity's answer? Further separation. Further separation. The perversion, from, the perversion and the thinking of theologies like Luther's here only brought greater division within believers, even, between Jew and Gentile. It created theological constructs that negate righteous living for disciples of Yeshua. Time and time again, we can see over the history, 1900 years, how many believers followed the commandments of God. Remember my Passover. Come before me for Sukkot. Come before me for Shavuot. How many times were those replaced with the man-made holidays? With the Lord's Day, Sunday. With Easter. With Pentecost. With All Saints Day. It has everything to do, has everything to do with the study of the book of Galatians because it's man-made rules to negate the very revealed righteousness of God for his disciples, the disciples of Messiah. And not, least, not the least of which, I believe it is a conspiratorial delusion of epic proportions designed by the enemy of God and carried out in the lives of men seen as an attack upon the very God of Israel and it has succeeded for 1900 years for 1900 years the enemy has laughed that the disciples of Messiah disobey him and think it is righteousness to disobey him Some of those theologies uh, we gave you, we looked at uh, some of these theologies. Uh, 
basically Christianity falls into two camps with regard to the question of Israel. The first camp we looked at was supersessionism. It's the oldest. It's the oldest of all constructs, Christian constructs, that deal with Israel. It dates to the very early in the second century. It's also called replacement theology. Justin Martyr is the first one to record this errant theology. And in Justin Martyr's uh, um, letter called A Dialogue with uh, Trifo the Jew, he actually goes to the extremes of showing how the commandments of God, even the Sabbath given to, uh, given to Israel, was given as a punishment because Jews were so stiff-necked. Can you imagine reading that and reading Luther? By the way, if you ever have an opportunity to read Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo the Jew, you should read it in, in, in concert with reading the words that I just read of Luther. You'll find a lot of similarities. You'll find a lot of similarities if you read the, uh, the 5th century uh, uh, church uh, luminary uh, called the Doctor of the Church, as the Catholic Church has named him, St. Chrysostom. John Chrysostom in the 5th century was virulent anti-Semitic uh, to the point of, of, of even coming under um, uh, discipline and... and uh, uh, agreeing to discipline because he was so anti-Semitic. Uh, a hateful, hateful man. In his words and the writings of what he, uh, of what he gave uh, and used, and those words are used as, 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 uh, as theological basis for some of the things that we see in supersessionism. Supersessionism found a way to answer the question, what about Israel, with the answer... The church is the real Israel. So we replace. So instead of Israel, there's the church now. God gave up on that people, but he won't give up on this people. That kind of thinking. To do this, many passages of the, of the scriptures had to be uh, allegorized. Uh, uh, and in fact, places where it is very obvious that of the future restoration of Israel, that's completely allegorized. Whole parts of the Tanakh, of the Hebrew scripture, uh, become merely a, a, uh, an allegory for the church instead of the historical basis for what they are or the prophetic nature of what they spoke of and speak about Israel. What was the result of this was a diminished importance of the, for the, what they call the Old Testament. Because after all, it was all fulfilled and revealed in Jesus. There's no need for further, further illumination. You're going to find this kind of discussion oftentimes. You're going to hear your friends and, and uh, your brothers and sisters in Messiah saying such words. Well, why would I need to learn that? Because, uh, you know, I don't need to read all that Old Testament stuff because after all, I know what it's all about now. I have the New Testament. Not recognizing that the followers of Yeshua did not have the apostolic scriptures. The first followers, they, they got the depth. They got their theology, their doctrine, not from the New Testament. They got their theology from the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures. They understood the revelation of Messiah as complete, as, as profound, as deep as coming from the, the, the Hebrew scriptures. They would shudder at the, at the at, at Christianity's despising and rejecting of the Hebrew Scriptures. Supersessionists also saw a need, and uh, because they had a difficulty with law in the New Testament, they split the commandments of God into three or four categories. This is part of the reason you need to understand this relationship between the law and the Jewish people. And 
early church fathers understood this, that, that the way that you identify Jewish people is they obey God. They keep his commandments. So if we're not Jews, as they would say, we're not Jews, we shouldn't keep those either. The problem is they still had difficulty because some of those laws they saw as moral and good. What they did was they began to categorize, split the commandments of God into three or four categories. Uh, some, they saw, well, those are good, those are moral. Uh, and then they say, well, now some are ritual, so they don't really apply anymore. Those are, and they're not going to say it out loud today, but in, the, in days past, they did. Those are Jewish. Beloved, you know this is true. To this day, what do people call the feasts of Leviticus chapter 23? So many people in Christian denominations call them the feasts of the Jews. You'll find the word Jew not present in Leviticus 23. In fact, Leviticus 23 starts off by saying, and these are the appointments, the Moadim of Hashem. They're his they're not given to Jewish people alone. They're his. They're for him. He established them. The first one listed is the Sabbath, the Shabbat. That wasn't given to the Jewish people alone, no matter what our Jewish brothers and sisters say. Who is it given to? It was for Hashem himself. God himself kept the Sabbath. Does God want himself to keep the Sabbath and not his people? Classical Christian theology said no. Even today, you're going to see this constant distinction between moral law and ritual law, ceremonial law, whatever it is, whatever the discussion, whatever the division, I'm going to challenge anyone that comes up with it, please, show me in Scripture this division. Certainly, the Torah of God has categories within it. But you're not going to find moral or ritual. And the more you try and pigeonhole moral and ritual, I hope the more you see that all you're trying to do is get away those things that look too Jewish. Supersessionism created man-made ways to enter the covenant. For example, instead of circumcision, they employed baptism as the mark of the covenant. Now, if you are a member of a denomination that uses baptism as a mark of the covenant, I don't mean to offend you, but I want you to understand that even your denomination agrees that this was a replacement for circumcision. But there's no evidence in Scripture of that. Beloved, when we begin to see the things that were taken and perverted and twisted by the early Christian church, the things that were biblical... Hebraic, turns into new things, we can see, we begin to see the evidence that it, had, it, that it was paganized. Immersion, or baptism, is indeed a mark. It's not a replacement for circumcision, because, do you remember the ritual conversion that is outlined in the Talmud? What does it say? Circumcision, and then ablution, immersion. They both were means by which to enter the covenant, but they're man-made means, not God's means. Where were washings ever God's means of entering the covenant? You're not going to find it. Read the New Testament all you want. You're not going to find where baptism is the means to enter the covenant. 
And I'm familiar with all of the passages as well. But immersion is not the means to enter the covenant. That is a man-made way of entering the covenant. It is a confusion and a misunderstanding of the Hebraic things that were given. And a re-application in a way that superseded Scripture. Some branches of Christianity, baptism is simply one of several sacraments. But all of those sacraments are man-made. Communion is another example. Communion, where does it come from? Is this a new thing instituted in Matthew chapter 27? This is my blood in the new covenant, as Yeshua said. Well, what was he doing? Was it a Passover or not? If it was, it was not a new thing. There is no Lord's Supper if it undoes the commandment of the Passover. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, makes this very point. He says, let's keep the feast. does it again in chapter 11. Let's keep the feast. What feast is he talking about? Passover. And he's talking about what people call the Lord's Supper. Instead, what this reapplication of these biblical things and this turning them around, new pagan concepts replace the truth. So-called sacraments have origins that have nothing to do with covenant membership. These are man-made ways to enter the covenant. Supersessionism provided a man-made way. What are we reading in the book of Galatians? Not to rely on the man-made way. Dispensationalism also had man-made ways. Dispens- er, supersessionalists were less read- re- literal in reading scripture. This causes problems. About the 19th century, dispensationalism really rises uh, to the forefront in, in Christian theology. Whether it becomes dominant or not is disputable, but it is certainly a, 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 it, it is certainly a uh, uh, um, if not a majority, is certainly a large portion of, of Christianity holds to dispensationalism. Where did dispensationalism come from? It came in a reaction to, to, to supersessionism. Because in reading the prophets uh, in a more literal way, the theologian had to ask the question, when asking the question, what about Israel? They had to say, well, I don't like the answer that we have to allegorize this, so maybe there's an age. Maybe there's a dispensation. Okay, there was God's people before with Israel. Uh, that was up until Jesus showed up on the scene. And then, then a new dispensation was, was administered through his death, burial, resurrection. That's the dispensation of the church. And, and that dispensation will go on to a time prior to the end time where, where Jesus will return and take his church away and then what we'll have is we'll have the Jews once again being the people of God and all of them will repent and then we have, we have a literal uh, thousand year reign and, and Christianity has these two groups uh, dispensationalism and supersessionism they're all, both asking the same questions and they're coming up with different answers uh, but their means by which to come up with the answers may be different but in reality the, the, answer, the, the question is not being answered but what about Israel? There are man-made ways to come up with what about Israel? Dispensationalism is a reactionary to supersessionism 
it's not even a real attempt to return to first century orthodoxy. Now, I know the dispensationalists will say, well, well, well no, we want, we want to go back to that early faith, that orthodox faith of the first followers of Yeshua. But in so doing, what they don't recognize is they've built that upon the foundation of supersessionism to start with. They've taken for granted everything that was handed them as, the, as, as theology by men like, uh, by men like uh, Justin Martyr or, or uh, John Chrysostom or uh, Aquinas or Augustine or Origen. Uh, or Luther, or, or Calvin. They've taken for granted all these things that were handed to them and saying, this theology is safe, now let's go back and let's find out what we need to take out. Not recognizing that, wait, 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 we need to stop. We need actually, to get back to the beginning, we may need to go to Judaism and understand what Judaism said about these things first. If we, need to under, if we want to understand what happened in the first century, we cannot drink from the polluted fountain of 1900 years of classical Christian theology. We need to go to the source. Now, we know, and we're going to see here in a second, Judaism is not, it's not faultless in this either. In every regard, we are going to have to be uh, discerning and wise. Because all the way along the line, there are men that are being used by the enemy to deceive and to destroy the people of God. Now, another thing that, super, that dispensationalism did, uh, it wasn't anti-Jewish. It wasn't as overtly anti-Jewish as supersessionism is. But it's more, it's more uh, strongly against the law. And it comes because dispensationalists have a greater reliance on what they call faith alone for covenant membership. Now, it is true, faith alone for covenant membership. That's very laudable. However, supersessionism uh, or dispensationalism uh, treats, uh, interprets the word faith to be a lack, a lack of physical evidence. Dispensationalism sees the word faith to be a lack of physical evidence. In other words, not visible. Leading to a teaching that's basically a mental agreement other than evidentiary, other, rather than evidentiary faith. Raising a hand or walking an aisle, agreeing to a set of doctrines along with church membership. Those are important elements for covenant membership. Now, most, most, most dispensationalists would never connect church membership to covenant membership Overtly, and yet what do they do? If someone raises their hand, walks the aisle, prays the prayer, what automatically happens in many dispensational uh, uh, churches? They are they become members automatically, are members of that church. Even if the mem- even if the people that did this had no intention of doing that, that's usually what occurs. They've tied church membership to this. Uh, this assent, this mental assent to a, a set of standards or praying a prayer or whatever else. And in fact, then you, you, you become a member of the greater body of, of Christ and also the local body of Christ. Uh, the, the problem with all this uh, is not the good foundational teaching. It is by faith alone. The problem is that it is being applied in ways that are man-made. Who said you had to walk, walk the aisle? Who said you had to raise your hand? Who said that praying a prayer of repentance makes you a member of the covenant? Repentance does. That's true. But is praying a prayer of repentance? Is that repentance? 
We all know it isn't. We know it can be. We, can, we know that some people raise their hands to walk an aisle. And it is a real step of discipleship. We know that's true. But is, are those the definition of discipleship? Please show me in the Gospels. Please show me in the Epistles. Please show me anywhere in Scripture where those are the marks of discipleship. In the case of both supersessionism and dispensationalism, the people who are a part of it are usually ignorant of, their, of, of its theological origin. They don't know that they're actually at odds with the denomination's doctrine. Virtually all of Christianity for the past 1900 years is found in one of these two camps. Or combination. You know, some denominations find them, take a little from here, take a little from there. Sadly, even parts of Messianic Judaism, uh, there, is a, there is a dispensational branch of Messianic Judaism. It's very sad because uh, having started down that path, to discover biblical faith, orthodox biblical faith, they still can't get quite past this insidious theology, dispensationalism or supersessionism. They can't get past it. They think it's part of believing in Yeshua. Pointing to a collective theology that's problematic does not in any way negate the true faith that for many who live in supersessionalist or dispensationalist communities. If you are a member of a dispensationalist church, this is not meant as a criticism of you or your life or your beliefs. It is simply a warning that some of the things that Paul is discussing in Galatians apply to each of us. Not just those who are, as some say, Judaizers. All of us have this bent towards relying on man's means rather than God's. All of us have this problem with identity and identifying ourselves with a group of people, with a denomination, with a church, with a sect as opposed to identifying ourselves as we should, as simply being a disciple. Even those identifying themselves as disciples, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, oftentimes do it to differentiate themselves from everybody else. We're not talking about being the only ones that know the truth. All we're simply doing is warning one another to take heed lest we fall. Like I said, rabbinic Judaism is not guiltless in this, in this struggle. We saw early on how early rabbinic Judaism answered the question, what about Gentiles, with man-made laws of ritual conversion. Just like supersessionalism and dispensationalism, would do later, they took biblical concept and created a man-made answer to the question. So the que it doesn't really matter whether the question is, what about Israel, or what about Gentiles, the problems are the same. The man-made answer is remarkably the same. Almost identical. 
What did rabbinic Judaism say? The answer is become a Jew. And what did supersessionism and dispensationalism say? Become a Christian. Become a Gentile. So Paul's letter rebuke to the Galatians is as appropriate for supersessionists or dispensationalists as it was for those who were urging ritual conversion in the first century. In other words, all of you are wrong. And I include myself in that as well. We often find ourselves in the difficult position of defending our beliefs not from the pure word of Scripture, but from whom we received it. We need to be so careful. We need to be so faithful, so wise in our discerning of the Scriptures that we don't repeat the error of those that we are most critical of. And ironically, the most critical groups within uh, classical Christianity today of the Jewish people are the supersessionists. The very ones who condemn Jews for disobeying God's commandments regularly and repeatedly teach to disobey God's commandments as a form of righteousness. In other words, breaking the Sabbath is good. We can see it all, all the way back to Constantine's first decree regarding the Lord's Day, as he called it. Commanding all subjects of the Roman Empire, especially Christians, to work on the seventh day, to purposefully desecrate it. Because that was an act of true Christian faith. Beloved, that is the basis for many, many of our misunderstandings of the Scripture. Man's way, not God's way. What is God's way? Go to Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 24. We've used this passage repeatedly throughout our study. We've alluded to it. Beginning in verse 17. And if some of the branches were broken off, by the way, he's using the olive tree as a, as a, as a memory device for this picture, as an illustration. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root of fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You say then, branches were broken off, that I may be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. By the way, that is called irony. It's, it's, it, is a, it is a form of irony. He's not saying that he'll not spare natural branches. He's telling you, be afraid. You think that you can point your bony finger at the Jew and say, God didn't spare you. 
And yet, yet that same pointing, uh, bony finger is pointed at you. Then he may not spare you either. If God can break his promises to the Jewish people, then he can break his promises to you. May it never be. God forbid he will not break his promises. Continuing in verse 22. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but to you, goodness. Again, irony. If you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in belief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. How is that possible, you might ask? How is it possible? They could be grafted in again? Oh yeah, the they become Christians. Isn't that what he's talking about? Beloved, that is not what he's talking about. He's not talking about them, them renouncing Judaism. Not at all. Verse 24. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is by nature, which is, which is wild by nature, and were grafted in... For God is able to graft them in, excuse me, and grafted in, let me go back to verse 24. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to the nature into a cultivated tree, olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And he's going to tell us a mystery now. I know I didn't include this uh, verse, go for verse 25. He's going to include, include us in a little mystery. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Uh, should you be wise in your own opinion? For the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will take away, turn away ungodly from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. Period. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. How does it work? I don't know. I can't answer this. Grafted in again? How will they be grafted in again? The fullness of the Gentiles? Isn't that, Rick, isn't that talking about the dispensation of the Gentiles? Actually, ironically, uh, there's an, the, the ancient sages taught that Gentiles could not be converts once Messiah is revealed. Once Messiah comes, in their mind comes the first time, and our mind would return. Once Messiah comes, he says Gentiles cannot, will not be able to repent. They can't become converts. Why? Because it will be obvious then. No, true faith is when they, it's, before, it's before Messiah returns. Beloved, Paul has the same, same understanding. It's based on a truth. And that is the time for repentance is now, today, not later, not when you see him come. But how is Israel going to be grafted in? It, it doesn't say. All it says is, so all Israel will be saved. This is a mystery he's revealed it to you. It's not obvious. It's not evident. You don't see it today. Today they look like your enemies for the gospel statement concerning the election of their beloved for the sake of their fathers. Every time we pray the Amidah, every time we pray the Shemona Esrei, we start out with uh, a vote, the, the, the petition to God, God of our fathers, Abraham, God of our father, Isaac, God of our father, Jacob, uh, remembering their faithfulness. Father, shield us, protect us, keep us. Those prayers have been prayed for thousands of years by a people who depend upon the Almighty for their protection. Sometimes, sadly, against the very hands of Christians. Have those same Christians boasted? Saying, you're not a part. You're an enemy. Beloved, for the sake of election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. 
God will not cast off those whom he foreknew. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's way is that, we're, that we, if we are gentle, are grafted in. That's God's way. But because we're grafted in, does not mean we have the right to turn a haughty nose to those who we say, well, you are cut off. We know the truth. You are in error. We are supposed to be gracious, recognizing that they were a part of the root to which we were grafted in. Where did this, Paul get this image of Romans 11? Did he make it up? Did it come from nothing? Uh, no, it wasn't. In your study, we looked at uh, Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16 through 17. Go there real quickly. Jeremiah 11, 16 through 17. The Lord called your name, green olive tree, lovely and of good fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he kindled a fire on it, and its branches are broken. For the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced doom against you for the evil of the house of Israel and for the house of Jacob, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to angering, offering incense to Baal, to Baal. See, this is the problem. Is most, most of the supersessionists read that and stop reading. They read that as literal. But they don't read Ezekiel chapter 37 as literal. They want to see the curses poured out on Israel. They want to see the blessings poured out on them. And the very things they accuse Israel of doing, breaking the commandments of God, they do themselves. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out of out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were many in the open valley. Indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the word says the Lord God to those bones surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live then you shall know that I am the Lord let me pause for a moment of course our supersessionist friends will read this and say that God did that Ezekiel wrote this in, 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 uh, in the 6th century BCE and God did it he brought them back and they still disobeyed I'm going to challenge you to read the rest of this passage that these things were never accomplished that this prophecy is yet to be fulfilled God willing it is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled in our day with our eyes we will see his return to Zion in, in, in faithfulness to his promise verse 7 so I prophesied and I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone indeed I looked and sinews and flesh came upon them skin covered them over but there was no breath in them also he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded thee, and breath came into them, 
and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come out from, up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, said the Lord. Again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write in it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them to another, one to another, for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of Israel speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be in my hand, and the stick on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land of the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be a king over them. And they shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from their dwelling places in which they have sinned. I will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then shall they dwell in the land I give to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore maybe soon in our days that was Ezekiel 37 God's way grafted in God's way the complete and total restoration of the people his chosen people Israel God's way his tabernacle among them forever then the nations will know beloved we have not seen this we see hints, but they're only hints. 
when we see this, when our eyes see this, we can say that our eyes have seen Zion restored, that it's Shekinah, His divine presence, His presence in Jerusalem. Then we can know He has sanctified Israel. There'll be no question, no doubt. The enemies of Israel will be defeated. The enemies of Messiah will repent. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. And you, speaking to Gentiles, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead and in trespasses, made us alive together in Messiah, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us to get, sit together in the heavenly places in Messiah Yeshua, that in the ages to come he might show the exceedingly riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Messiah Yeshua. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua, four good works that God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth, by the word, the word commonwealth we saw is politeia. It means citizenship. Aliens from the citizenship of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off, do you remember that soreg? That wall that surrounded the temple in the second temple? Well, Gentiles could say, you can come up here, but you can go no further. This is sacrificial language. This is the language of the temple. But now, Messiah Yeshua, who you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he himself is our peace. He is our shalom. He is our shalem offering. Our korban shalem. Who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, as to create in himself one new man from the tomb, thus making peace. We pause. Remember, law of commandments contained in ordinances, those are man-made ordinances, keeping the Gentile worshiper out of the temple. Verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Hold your place right there. Is that what the second century church did? Did they see a putting to death of the enmity? Did they see one body through the cross? Is that what Luther did when he wrote The Jews and Their Lies? It was, is that what our theology has done? Has it put to death the enmity? 
beloved his not. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and those who were near, the Gentile and the Jew. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Yeshua Messiah himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built together as it for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Messiah Yeshua for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery I have also briefly written already by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Messiah, which in the ages past was not made known to the sons of men, as now has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, have partakers of his promise in Messiah through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me who am less less than the least of all the saints was this grace given to me that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of the Messiah and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Messiah Yeshua to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the congregation to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Messiah Yeshua our Lord in whom we have boldness and access through confidence through faith in him. What's the mystery? What's the gospel? Beloved, Gentiles can be a part of Israel. Gentiles can share in the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Gentiles have a part in the world to come. Not by the act of man. Not by the joining of a church. Not by walking down an aisle. But by the grace of God through faith alone. Gentiles were without hope can now be grafted in. By the work of Messiah, we can draw near. This is good news. Let's do a little bit of uh, exegesis. Let's go ahead and read through uh, Galatians uh, chapter 6. Uh, we'll finish by, by doing that. Start at verse 1. We'll read through verse 5. Brothers, even if a man is caught in some fault, you who are spiritual must restore such a one in a spiritual spirit of gentleness. Look into yourself so that you also aren't tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the word, fulfill the Torah of Messiah. By the way, how do I know if I love my brother? Keep his commandments. That's what First John says. Verse 3. For if a man thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each man test his own work, then he will take pride in himself and not in his neighbor, for each man will bear his own burden. What we do does matter, beloved. Verse 6. But let him who is taught 
in the word, share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that we, we, he will also reap. For he who sows to his own flesh will reap the flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not be weary in doing good. For we reap, we will reap in due season if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let's do what is good toward all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. Beloved ritual conversion, excuse me, how do we sow to the Spirit? It's by doing good toward all men. Verse 11. See what large letters I write to you with my own hand. As many as desire to look in the flesh, they compel you to be circumcised. Only that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Messiah. For even they who receive circumcision don't keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Messiah Yeshua neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Ritual conversion is taught for one reason. Not for unity for pride. The only unity is found in Messiah himself and complete faith in his work alone. Verse 16. As many as walk by this rule, peace and mercy be on them and on God's Israel. For from now on, let no one cause me any trouble, for I bear the marks of the Lord Yeshua branded in my body. The grace of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, be with you in spirit, brothers. Amen. Paul's made his case through this book. He's backed it up with his deeds. He's proven himself to be a friend to the Gentile and the Jew. Beloved, I hope that in this study you have seen the danger spelled out in Galatians is not the danger of returning to the law, but rather it's the danger depending on man-made ways to enter the covenant. We enter by the work of Messiah alone. Classical Christianity, ironically, in dissing itself from Judaism, is guilty of the very same thing that Paul warned against the Galatians. That is, using man's approval or man's method to enter the covenant. It's not by circumcision. It's not by ritual conversion. It's not by baptism. It's not by walking an aisle. It's not by praying a prayer. It's by faith. That is, that is evidenced in true discipleship. That is grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19 says, What matters is keeping the commandments of God. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. His friends do not disobey Him. His enemies do not obey Him. Which side are you on? Is there evidence that you are a disciple of Messiah Yeshua? And if so, what is it? Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for each one has labored in this study. Maybe not labored with a result of having all questions answered, but Father, labored all, all the while in the desire to know the truth. Don't stop teaching us the truth. Don't stop giving us a hunger and a thirsting for your righteousness. Please, Father, give us a desire to
to see your plan unfold, not only in our lives, but in the lives of our families and lives of our congregations and lives of the people around us, our neighbors. Father, give us a desire to see, our, see your righteousness unfolding in our nation, in the world, that one day Messiah will reign from his throne in Jerusalem and all the world will bow their knee to him. I pray for each one and ask that you bless us all. In Messiah Yeshua's name, Amen. This is the Alenu prayer. It is our duty to praise the Master of all, to ascribe greatness to the molder of primeval creation. For he has not made us like the nations of the lands, and not in places like the families of the earth. For he has not assigned our portion like theirs, nor a lot like all their multitudes. For they bow to vanity and emptiness, and pray to God which helps not. But we bend our knees bow and acknowledge our thanks before the King who reigns over kings, the Holy One, blessed is He. He stretches out the heavens and establishes the earth's foundations. The seat of His homage is in the heavens above and His powerful presence is in the loftiest heights. He is our God and there is none other. True is our King, there is nothing beside Him. As it is written in this Torah, you are to know this day and take to your heart that the Lord is the only God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is none other. Therefore, we put our hope in you, Lord our God, that we may soon see your mighty splendor to remove detestable idolatry from the earth and false gods will be utterly cut off to perfect the universe to the Almighty's sovereignty. Then all humanity will call upon your name to turn to the earth's wicked toward you. All the world's inhabitants will recognize and know that to you every knee should bend and every tongue should swear before you, Lord our God, they will bend every knee and cast themselves down to the glory of your name. And they will render homage and they will accept upon themselves the yoke of your kingship that you may reign over them soon and eternally for the kingdom is yours. And you will reign for all eternity in glory for as it is written in your Torah, the Lord shall reign for all eternity. And it is said, the Lord will be king over all that world, all the world. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. Amen.